Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 53. That's right, it is episode one of season two, but we'll call it 53, right? Yes, please. Right, we're the podcast where we talk about photography, videography, making photos, making videos, and everything that's got anything to do with any of that. And also, in season two, of course, we've got lots of really awesome guests lined up mm -hmm. again. And today, without further ado, we are going to be talking to none other than Mark Wallace himself. You might know him as the face of Adorama TV, but Mark is a commercial fashion photographer, educator, solo motorcycle circumnavigator, and the man who taught me everything I know about speedlights. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Mark, I did not you? know that. I'm fantastic. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, I love your podcast. So um, I'm really stoked to be joining you guys today. Wicked. Thank you, Ben. Mark. You are on the road, literally, at the moment. So tell us where you are at this very moment. Right now, I'm in uh, Cartagena, uh, Colombia. And uh, I've been traveling since uh, 2014 full-time. So I sold everything, almost everything, uh, in the United States, my house, and shut down the studio, all that stuff. And then I, I traveled for about two years, planes, trains, and automobiles, all that stuff. And then in 2016... I went back to the United States and I got a motorcycle and I, I really wanted to uh, circumnavigate the world. I actually wanted to ride through every single continent except Antarctica. Uh, and so I did that. Uh, I think I finished in uh, 2018. Yeah, late 2018. And then I just kept going. And so uh, unfortunately, all the borders are closed. And because of the pandemic and, and all of that, I've tried everything possible and it looks like the trip is coming to an end in about no. three weeks. I have to go back to the United States. Uh, there's just no more borders that are open and Colombia is kicking me out. They're like, you've been here long enough. So uh, I'll be back in the United States uh, in less than a month, actually, about three weeks. So what, what, um, is, the, what is the situation in, in, in Colombia like? At, at the moment, is it, are the numbers rising or what's the situation there COVID-wise? Well, right now it's... Uh, we just had Holy Week. And so uh, in Latin America, that's a big family gathering time. And so, of course, numbers went up for that. And then it really depends on the, the uh, part of Colombia that you're in. So in uh, the northern part of the, the Caribbean and Santa Marta and Barranquilla, uh, it's, it's not great. Occupancy rates are about 85% for the hospitals, um, some up to 90%. And so there are uh, quarantines and travel restrictions and thing like, things like that. In uh, um, Bogota and in Medellin, they've got even stricter quarantines. And so, um, yeah, there's there's some pretty heavy-duty lockdowns depending on the cities that you're in. Wow. So do you think, um, you know, perhaps in a year's time when hopefully things are getting back to slight normal, you'll, you'll, you'll go back, you'll start traveling again? I think so, yeah. there's um, I've got some uh, pretty big projects on the horizon starting in three weeks. And that's going to take me about a year to finish that work. So I partnered with Creative Live to bring a new curriculum to the platform. So uh, I just had a meeting with uh, Chase yesterday, I guess. And so we went through all of that. Chase Jarvis, sorry. Um, and uh, so I think we're doing, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be creating about 12 new classes. So one per month or maybe one every three weeks for Creative Live. And it's uh, an entire curriculum of Photoshop, Lightroom, uh, digital photography basics, and lighting basics, speed light strobes, 
constant lights, and it's um, I'm creating it out of all the content that I've created over the past 15 or so years. Um, and so it's sort of my my master class and a gift to the world. So uh, that's going to be really exciting. Um, I was just working through all of that this morning. That starts, um, I'll be in the studio in three and a half weeks, I think, to to start shooting the first first class. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of that time in life where I need to take a little bit of a break. Um, I haven't been to the United States for more than a couple months since 2014. So um, I don't know, it's, it's going to be a culture shock, a reverse culture shock for sure. Every time I'm back in the States or in Europe, it's, it's very strange to me. Um, and so I've talked to several other travelers that have gone for extended periods of times and they're like, uh, watch out because it's going to be as difficult coming back as it was leaving and perhaps even more difficult psychologically. So that's going to be an interesting time, I think. So I'll be writing about it and of course, updating uh, videos and stuff to sort of explain all that stuff, but that's what's happening. It's a lot. Do you think, do you think it's going to be difficult um, because you're sort of going back into American culture or do you think it's, it's going to be tricky because by the nature of the way that you travel on a motorbike, you're you're on your own for quite long periods of time, I guess. Uh, do, do you think? I think it's, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I think both of those things are true. I mean, there's there's the, the uh, psychology of coming back to the United States because culturally, I think I've changed as a person um, in the United States. We, we define um, success as either somebody that's got a lot of money, somebody that has a lot of power or somebody that has a lot of fame. Those are really the three ways that we define a successful person. And if, even if you look at podcasts and, uh, you know, uh, blogs and things about photography, that's, that's how we define a, a successful photographer. How many views do they have? How many followers do they have? How much money that have they made? Um, and, and I don't really necessarily agree with that anymore. And so to try to merge some of the values that I now have with the values that I grew up with, um, I think will be a little bit difficult. And also going back to um, a country that's very wealthy is sort of a, a shock because I've been living in in countries that um, some of them are impoverished, some of them have vastly different cultural values, so not quite as materialistic, not even close to being quite as materialistic. And so it's, uh, it's almost... Um, I wouldn't say offensive, but it's almost offensive to go back and see these giant, what I used to think were normal sized houses. But now I think, oh my gosh, why would anybody need all this stuff? The problems that people tend to deal with, you know, their Starbucks was the wrong flavor. They didn't get their uh, food fast enough. They can't find a parking place. Their car is not the newest, you know, just these annoyances that um, I've had all my life, but now see as sort of this um weird thing like wh why are you upset about that you've got a family you've got safety you've got you know what you need why is this a thing and so adjusting to those um those kind of realities will be difficult and then also every time i've gone back i find myself at the beginning going why are people upset about this stuff and then two weeks in i'm like ah my starbucks isn't hot enough and i'm right back where <laughs> i started and then i'm offended with myself like, ah, I thought I was better than this. And it turns out I'm not. So it's, it's all of that stuff. It's, <laughs> it's funny you mention that because, you know, these are the kind of things I'm, I'm desperately trying to teach my kids. You know, and I have like three kids <laughs> and they're like, they're aged between right. uh, nine and 18. 
and especially like my two older ones. Wait, wait, um, wait. Did you say nine and 18? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my, my youngest is nine and then my, I have two stepkids and they are 17 and 18. And, okay. uh, and they are obviously the teenagers, you know? And so they're like yeah. fully sort of uh, involved in, you know, in, in their culture, basically. And so, uh, you know, the amount of times that they get really annoyed or upset about something and rant on about something where you just have to pull them back and like, go like, guys, this is like, you know, first world problems right here. I mean, sure. You know, and which we're desperately trying to kind of reel them back, you know? And so we're kind of, you know, we're hoping that, um, and of course the last couple of years haven't been great for them in order to, in terms of like getting out and seeing the world, because of course we've been totally locked down over here in the UK for the last, for the last year at least. So, you know, we're trying to uh, make sure that they, you know, get out and see other things uh, for a change so they actually get more of a perspective, right. you know. Um, and that's the key word, isn't it? I think perspective. Yeah, yeah, it for sure. It really, sure, really sure. is. You know, I remember. I'm curious, does the 18-year-old the have different perspectives than the 9-year-old? I mean, do they have, they look at t- the same thing and go, ah, this is this and no. Yeah, see, the, be, inter- the really interesting thing is is that, you know, the older ones are really full, they're, they're really, you know, it's like, I feel like sometimes I have to like, catch them with a lasso and pull them back out of the swamp of like first world problems, you know? And, uh, but the, the nine-year-old, she's starting to kind of get drawn into it, in, into all of that, you know? And because she likes to emulate what she sees the older ones do. And, you know, she started right. watching YouTube. Bad mistake, because she's not watching our channel, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know, so, um, but you know, it's uh, you can see you can see it happening. You know what I mean? Like week on week, you can see it happening. And so uh, you know, as parents, we're trying to, which, you know, because I'm, we're, we're such a uh, we call it a patchwork family. Like you know, my wife's Canadian, I'm German. You know, we 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 bring lots of different culturally, we bring different things together, and uh, and so we're trying to kind of, it's hard. You know, it's hard to explain. We're, we're trying yeah. to kind of make sure that they have a slightly wider perspective than just the little spot that they live in. It's just hard. Yeah, that's always, there's a, I forgot the scientist, but there's a a theory called the umwelt. It's actually a a word. Um, I think it's Swedish or something. But That's German. Is it German? Okay. (laughs) So you would know. But it's the the way that we perceive the environment around us. And so if you take a a normal room and you put a dog in that room and you put a, uh, a person in that room, you put a blind person in that room and you put a, a bird in that room, they're all in the same room, but they're going to perceive that same exact space in four totally different ways. And so part of the reason that I wanted to travel and it's to, you know, what you're doing with your kids is to expand that umwelt so you can try to to understand what that might be like from a person that's from a different religious background or cultural background or a different age um, to have some more understanding. It makes you a better person, I think, and also makes you a better storyteller because you're not so narrowly focused on your own point of view that you can't see the other things in the space. If you could time travel back and like you've been on the road for like six years, seven years, you know, something like that, you said, if you could time travel back and meet up with, you know, the Mark from six years ago, what would you tell him? Chill out, dude. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I would have a lot of different things to say to that mark, but I don't think that mark would really pay attention to the older mark. 
that's the issue with life, you know. Um, wisdom is learning from other people's experience, and um, either you you can or you can't. Um, you know, there's an old phrase in the New Testament. Jesus used to say, uh, "For him who has ears to hear." And you know, I grew up. My dad was a Southern Baptist preacher, and so I heard all this uh, New Testament stuff, and I'm like, "What the heck does that mean?" I never understood what. Like, why is he saying that? And now I'm much older. Uh, you know, in, in my older years, I get it. Like, there are some things that people can receive, and then there are things that it doesn't matter what you say, that person is just not going to hear it. So they don't have ears to hear. So I think the mark of six years ago probably would have been open to hearing some things about storytelling and photography and, and my travel and which bike to buy and, and uh, things about suspensions and things like that. But the lessons about um, uh, learning how to be in the moment and some tranquility and, and that kind of stuff, I think just takes a little bit of time and age. Age for sure. I've changed as I've gone through my twenties and, and through uh, my thirties now. It's I'm a completely different person. Thirties are years great, ago, you know. The experiences I've 20s had. Twenties are great because you have this, you know, this enthusiasm. You think you know everything and <laughs> have all the energy to take on the world, and you can accomplish a lot. Yeah. And then your thirties rock around, and it's really great because you finally start to earn some money, and so you don't have to eat hot dogs every day. <laughs> and I think when your forties roll around, it's great because now you know who you are and you don't have to really apologize. You can just like, this is who I am. And then your fifties roll around and you're like, what is happening? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, uh. You know, I, 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 not in any way what, what you've done at all, but, um, through my twenties, I traveled for work quite a lot to places like India, um, all over Europe and, um, uh, places like that. Right. For you know, several weeks at a time, you know, a couple of months at a time yeah. here and there, and that had had a huge impact on me, massive impacts. I was very sure. different come come the end of that kind of period of of life because of experiencing those different cultures. Is just you can't replace that with something else. You only get what you get yeah. from that by going to do something like that. And you know, right. as I grew up through the company that I was working for. You know, I it was. I don't think I worked with any other English people. Really, very few in comparison. Everyone was European or or Indian or from the US, and it it made made me what I am. Right and right. I would as much as I dislike <laughs> the last few years of working for that company in my early thirties. Truly dislike. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't give it up for the world. I wouldn't change any of it because it's made me who I am, right. and I wouldn't have got those experiences any other way, any other way. Yeah, you know, I, I I agree with that, and I think to bring us back to sort of the photographers that are watching this, one of the things, especially for younger photographers, um, that I think is a disadvantage is that the expectation for photographers is to constantly be posting on Instagram updating stories, making videos, and creating content. You know, content is king. And so it's just sort of drilled into you. You've got to create content. And then a lot of, of uh, like gap year kids and, you know, the backpackers and stuff that I've experienced through my travels, um, they're not actually experiencing the place that they're in because they're so consumed with creating content that they can't actually be present. 
And so, for example, you might have, you know, a, a few people that go to the beach and the entire time they're texting on their phone, they're trying to find the best angle, finding the sunset, trying to record something. And so the appearance of their life on Instagram looks fantastic. But the reality is they haven't experienced the place at all. All they've done is, you know, find the part of the beach that doesn't have trash in it, wait for the sun to go down and make a video so that it looks like they're cool. And so, I, you know, for uh, younger traveling photographers, I would suggest that if you are creating content, set aside time to create content and the rest of the time, leave your stuff at home. You know, don't bring your cameras, don't bring all your stuff. Just go and meet people, have the food experience, a great conversation, meet a stranger, find somebody that, you know, speaks a different language, try to have a conversation and, and do it just for the experience of doing it. Don't do it so that you can have a great clip for your YouTube channel. That's it, a, a very, very different thing. Absolutely. And, and Wise it, words. we actually um, experienced that ourselves only about a week ago. Uh, in, in last week's episode, we went to we went to London and the, the, our agenda was to create a particular type of photograph. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we, we went into town for the first time in the year, because that's how long the lockdown, the pandemic right. and everything has been. And so we went into town, you know, with the intent of shooting lots of video, because originally I think the plan was to, to create an episode entirely consisting of, um, of scenes that were filmed in town. Um, and, and at the same time, create, you know, these, these street photos. But what became clear very, very quickly was two things. First of all, it's very difficult to create photographs and create all the video content at the same time when it's only the two of us and we have to appear in the video at the same time. So right. that wasn't maybe planned too well. But the other thing was just simply, I think, once we got out of the train station and just being in, in town again for the first time in like a year, I think that in itself was was actually quite overwhelming. And I think, you know, we had a hard time creating enough footage to, to feel like three minutes. <laughs> I, I thought about this after, after last week's episode and yeah. I thought, how much time did we spend doing what we were doing? And it, I, I kind of worked it out right. that we spent about 5% of our time there actually taking some photos, 5% of the time taking a bit of video of us doing what we were doing and the rest of the time chatting and yeah, right, catching so up and <laughs> looking around and what's going on around us. And that's, kind of who we are <laughs> yeah and it was the first time it was the first right. time we were out on a, on a on a little you know trip get together type of thing you know since um the beginning of december yeah you know wow. and so yeah all of that became and and we knew we had to create some content but but actually all of the other stuff became so much more important in that in that moment that we in the end we didn't really care anymore whether we had enough content or not no. like, we just you know we just created right. an, an episode around what we ended up having in the end um which meant we ended up sitting in the park yeah, for the most part, which yeah. was actually fun. <laughs> yeah, sounded atrocious, but it, it was fun. That, <laughs> <laughs> that is that is fantastic. That you know that uh, your experience is my experience every time I make a video for Adorama or my own YouTube channel or whatever, any kind of tutorial, and I always um, try to explain. You know, people ask why did you do this. Um, you know, and, and the answer is usually. I couldn't do that because I couldn't show it on the video or I, I have to have a camera here and a camera here and there's got to be a light here. So what you don't see is all the stuff behind and it influences everything you do in that 
tutorial. And, um, you know, it's when I'm trying to take photos for a video, mainly I'm trying to, you know, present to the camera. That's my thought is, you know, is the audio level correct? Are the batteries still charged? Is the camera recording? Um, is the light on? Do I have the right shadows? Is there too much echo? Is there a plain noise? All that kind of stuff. And I'm almost totally detached from what I'm saying I'm doing, which is having a photo session. And so a lot of times I'll talk to people like, I cannot wait to get into the studio and, and actually take photos. And I'm like, you do that all the time. Like, no, I don't. What I do is I pretend like I'm doing it for the camera, you know, and I take some photos and stuff, but my head is, is not where it should be to do my best work because I'm making a video. I'm not necessarily making photos. It's, they're two different things. But I wonder, you know, I've wondered this a lot uh, when I've been, you know, watching your videos, and especially your travel, uh, your travel videos. I'm like, how, how do you lock all your gear around? Or did you, <laughs> like, were you really you, clever in like downsizing everything um, so that you can yeah, fit yeah. on a motorbike? I'll tell you my camera that I use. I'll just show you. This is the camera that I shoot most of my videos with. Is this, this guy right here. I don't know if that focuses. Yeah. So the Osmo Pocket. Oh, right. So, oh, cool. Awesome. All the travel videos are shot with either the Osmo Pocket or the Osmo Action. It's on my helmet. It's ninety percent of that footage is shot with the the DJI Osmos. And then the, the camera I'm using right now is the Sony ZV-1, which is very very small. So I have really really small cameras. Um, but the uh, for Adorama, I I have to have all the video cameras, but I also have to have the still cameras and studio lighting stuff and meters and all that stuff. So my motorcycle is literally filled with uh, hard drives, the computer, because I have to edit all that stuff on the road. So I've got a MacBook Pro in there. I've got external batteries. I've got um, the ZV-1. I've got the Osmo Pocket, the Osmo Action. So those three cameras, I've got little uh, clamps and hooks and stuff to mount cameras and ceilings and on chairs and stuff because they can't bring full tripods. I have one tripod, I have one light stand. Um, for the longest time, I had a Profoto B1 pack and head that I use. Now I have uh, speed lights that I use. I've got a Canon R5 and a 24-105 lens, the new R system. So I've got that. I've got a Sennheiser uh, mic. That's what I have right now. I've got a little regular mic underneath my uh, shirt. And then uh, what else do I have? Cables and tripods and little tiny. I've got little tiny like uh, bags full of connectors and all kinds of stuff. Um, and then I have one small bag of clothes. So almost everything I have is just to make content. So my dream is to one day be able to travel and not have to produce anything. Like that would be fantastic to be able to just go and experience it and not take a single photo. Wow, that'd be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's always, you know, I, just, uh, I, I guess... I guess a lot of viewers would would probably you know think that it's like how you know how do you combine the traveling part and then everything else that goes around it because I mean we you know we know how long it takes and how hard it can be to put you know a video together even if it's only like only ten minutes long but it could potentially take quite a long time to get all the content together yeah. and edited and stuff like that so how do you organize that on your you know on your travels? Well, the travel is is unscheduled so the plan is no plan so i have the freedom because i don't have you know kids or family or anything like that i don't have to be anywhere 
The only constraints are the obligations that I've made with uh, Adorama and other companies like AudioSocket and Creative Live and Mac Group and, and uh, those organizations. And so what I'll do is I, I try to make sure that I'm always in a, a major city or some place where I have friends where I can create content specifically for Adorama. So in uh, Colombia, Medellin is sort of my second home. Um, I've got a lot of photographer friends who live there, studios that you know I can rent that are there. I've got a lot of friends who are models. And so it's really easy to go into Medellin and then uh, set up for maybe a day or two and shoot. I can normally shoot two episodes in a day. More than that, my brain melts down because it's just difficult to get all the B-roll and the setup shots and you know saying all the lines right. Um, and so... Uh, usually it, it, that takes about six hours, something like that. So it takes about three, three to four hours to shoot a 10 minute video around there. Uh, cause you have to come in, set up everything, um, shoot the entire video and remember what the heck you're teaching. And then you also have to, while you're talking to a camera, spin around and then on the first go shoot a photo that's print quality, which is almost impossible to do that. And so um, a lot of times, you know, I'll set up the, the teaching and I'll separate the teaching from the photography specifically so I know I have photos that are, are high enough quality to actually show and say, yeah, this is right. Um, and then, yeah, then uh, I'll go into a hotel room or something and, and then edit like crazy. So there are some times uh, that I'll edit for maybe four or five days and that's it. That's all I'm doing is just editing. Uh, and that's also why the travel videos are so sporadic because my, you know, I'm paid to make videos for Adorama and other partners. And so if I have a week in uh, a really amazing city and I spend that week just shooting one or two episodes and then ed editing those episodes and then trying to find Wi-Fi that's fast enough to upload it within, you know, 10 hours or something, that's five days. And so to make a travel video about that week, who wants to see me sitting in a hotel room for five days? Nobody. It's boring. And so there's no travel video for that. And then conversely, if I then leave that city and go to the jungle or do something that I think is pretty interesting, and I get to the next city, then I have another deadline that I need to create more videos for Adorama or whoever. So I don't have time to edit the travel stuff. I've got to keep making the stuff that's that's paying the bills. So it's it's always difficult to update marketonabike.com or update the videos of travel, all that kind of stuff. So um, hopefully once I get back to the United States, I can set up a little studio and, and be able to optimize that time. I'll be able to update some of the stories from around the world because there are some really interesting stories that I haven't told yet. Yeah, I bet. I bet, yeah. I bet in six years of traveling, you must have come across a lot of, a lot of really interesting stories to tell. Eh? Yeah, I mean, it's that mostly for me that the interesting things are the people that I meet along the way. And, um, you know, if, if I had the funds to do it, I would, I'd keep traveling and I would, I don't think I'd make any videos about myself. I would just do interviews and, and talk about the ways that people live and how they make their living and just different, um, different things about living in the world, different points of view, different uh, philosophies, things like that. I find that fascinating. And so I'd, I'd love to make a series just about that. Not that there's not a million of them on Netflix, but um, I think that that'd be the fun for me. 
You say, um, so where you are now, you, you kind of feels like your second home. I think you, you, you said a, a moment ago. Well, Medellin. So I'm in Cartagena now. Oh, Cartagena so, is a party. Yes. Yeah. What, is a what, what is it about that now. place that makes you feel at home? What, what, what draws you back there so often? Well, I, I, the first uh, time I was in Medellin was in 2016, I believe. Yeah. I'd just come from Panama on a boat with my motorcycle. And uh, fortunately for me, that, that crossing on this boat, I, I had it was with I think 10 or 15 other people. And so we were on this tiny sailboat for seven days, I think five days. And uh, everybody was fantastic. And by chance, we all ended up again in Medellin and decided to hang out. And so uh, as we did that, we met a bunch of locals. And even though the, the people in the sailboat moved on and did other adventures and stuff, um, those people that were in Medellin, I've remained friends with them. And also because of YouTube and Facebook and all of that, um, normally when I go to any city, there are people there that know who I am. And so I'll try to meet with those people. And, you know, half the time, at least or more, I'll meet somebody that becomes a friend for life. So in Medellin, it just happens that uh, a lot of those people are still there. Um, the photography community is really strong. So it's not so much the city. It's just the, you know, I've got a lot of friends there. And I was thinking the other day, I think, I think I have more friends in Medellin now than I do in Phoenix, where I've lived for, you know, 30 years or something. So um, it's, you know, it feels like coming home. There's a hotel that I stay in. It's an old mansion that was converted into, uh, they're sort of like hotel rooms, but they're just, it's just this really amazing space that you can go hang out in your room. You come downstairs, there's this big open area. Everybody's hanging out. There's a full-time kitchen there and a chef. And you just sort of, I mean, I say chef, like it's a five-star resort. No, this is some way that can cook chicken and rice for you if you want that kind of chef, a cook. Um, yeah, so it feels sort of like uh, somebody there that can, can help you out. So it feels a lot more of a cohesive community in Medellin than in other places. But I've experienced that in, in a lot of cities. So I, I experienced that in uh, Phnom Penh in, in Cambodia, a really strong community there. I stayed there for um, six, six or seven weeks, maybe eight weeks. Um, so I made some great friends there. I would, I wish I would have gone back this year. That was the plan, but I didn't. I found that in Madrid. So I stayed in Madrid for months. In Paris, I've got a really strong uh, foundation there. In Buenos Aires, of course, I got stuck there for almost a year because of the pandemic. So I think it was there nine months, yeah. So I've got a really strong, like, you know, I think of them as family in, in Buenos Aires. Same thing is true in Phoenix. Same thing is true in Seattle. Same thing is true in New York City. And then in London, uh, Gavin and Sam live down near Gatwick. And so, you know, I've got a community of people in uh, the United Kingdom. So it's sort of fun to be traveling for so long, uh, you know, having these different places. And Frankfurt, same thing. Frankfurt, Germany, Moscow, Russia, Novosibirsk, Russia. Um, yeah, the list is is long of places that I could just roll in and I'd feel right at home. Imagine, imagine it. Just <laughs> yeah. imagine it. That's good. Absolutely <laughs> incredible. I'm um, selling everything. I'm, I'm, I'm quite envious, I have to say. It's... <laughs> how much can I sell my children for? That's what I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I know you guys. And so next time in London, you know, we're going to hang out. So. Oh, for sure. That's 100%. Right. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Where were you know when um when the whole kind of pandemic thing first hit? Where, where were you uh, when that first started kick off? I was in um, 
Patagonia. And there's, I have a video of this happening, actually. It's, um, uh, I was uh, a friend of mine, Eileen Martinez, who I'm traveling with right now. Um, she's a, a solo traveler. And so she had traveled from the southern tip of South America all the way to the northern tip of North America. And uh, so she was on this journey. She did that in 2019. And at that same time, I was traveling. I just left Madrid, Spain, and I was with two of my friends from Spain. And we were traveling through the Western United States. And so I, I'd known who Eileen was through her social media, and she knew who I was through my videos and stuff. And so um, there's sort of this network of people traveling around the world for long periods of time. We all talk to each other. So it's, it's, a, it's a small community. So we tried to connect the, the four of us when we were in the United States, but uh, that we just missed each other because of logistics. And so uh, after that trip, my plan was to go back to Medellin and live in Colombia for a year and write a book and then edit all the travel videos because my trip around the world had finished. And so I returned to South America on my motorcycle and it was uh, around January, I guess, of 2020. And Eileen said, hey, you're, you're in Colombia. Why don't you just ride down here to Patagonia? Because you know the last time I was in South America on my motorcycle, I was there in the wintertime. And so uh, you know, June, July, August in South America is winter. And she said, you know, it's January. It's the perfect time to get all the way down to Ushuaia, the southernmost point of of South America. And I thought, hey, I haven't done that. Why not? I can do that in a month. I can just zip down on my bike. It's, I don't know, a few thousand miles, something like that. Boom, let's do it. So I did. So I headed south. I met Eileen in Patagonia. And uh, fortunately, um, there was a problem. So we did all the Chilean side of Patagonia and we crossed over the Andes and we were in Argentina and planning to go to Chalten and Calafate and see all these glaciers and a bunch of things. And Eileen's motorcycle uh, broke down, it died. And so she couldn't continue. And at that point, like when we crossed, I think from, from Chile into Patagonia, we just started seeing notices of, hey, if you've traveled in Asia, you have to let us know. There's this virus going around. So it was very, very new. It wasn't, you know, it was just starting to percolate on the news. And so um, the original plan was for us to spend a couple of weeks going down the, the uh, eastern side of the Andes Mountains and then meet it, go down to Ushuaia, which is the southern tip. But because Eileen's motorcycle broke down, I was a little bit tired. I thought, I'm just going to shoot straight down to Ushuaia. And I did. And then I started seeing more and more stories that, hey, this thing is spreading. Um, things are starting to shut down. So travel hadn't quite shut down then. And so I still didn't think it was going to be, you know, I'm thinking swine flu and, you know, the, the outbreaks that happened in West Africa with Ebola and some things. And so I'm thinking this is an isolated problem in a different part of the world. And so fortunately, I, I then turned north and went up to Buenos Aires because my niece had just moved there. So her, my niece and her husband. Um, and so they're in their 30s. I'm like, I'm coming to go up and, and see them for a couple of days. Then I'll go back to Colombia. And of course, I got to Buenos Aires, all the borders shut down. And then I was in a really strict quarantine um, from uh, the beginning of March all the way until November. So I was basically locked in a room that entire time. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that in itself is, is probably not too dissimilar from what we've experienced over here um, during that time, because March was when it really all locked down here. Um, right. And uh, and it was especially, I mean, we're, we're now just coming out of lockdown number three, but uh, certainly I mean, the first lockdown was probably the most intense one um, overall, not, not only because everything was shut down. I mean, it was the same this time around, but also the fear factor was different. Um, in the first, sure. you know, in the first lockdown, uh, because it was new, nobody knew what the hell was going on, and you know, yeah. and then out right. of sheer desperation, we started this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, good thing. Kind of enjoyed um, it and carried on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was it was not too dissimilar. We were allowed out for forty five minutes a day for exercise, right. was it? Yeah, that was the deal. Yeah, it's proper. Prison rules, wasn't it back then? Yeah, yeah. But, you know. Yeah, the dis- the difference between the quarantines in Europe and South America and North America and Brazil it, vastly different, and you can the numbers you know show vastly different results as well. Uh, but um, yeah, in Buenos Aires, the lockdowns were you can't leave your room, like you can't go outside. You're in. Um, and, uh, even here now, the difference, you know, was I went back to the United States for a couple of weeks in February to do some pre-production for the creative life stuff. And it was, it was sort of surreal, um, here when you go outside at all, you have to have a fat, a mask at all times, of course. Um, anytime you want to go into any kind of a business, you can't go in every single day. You can only go in on certain days based on your ident- identification numbers. And so it's like a third of the people on one, two, three, and then there's four, five, six, and seven, eight, nine, and then it sort of repeats. And if you do go, they take your uh, temperature, then you have to provide them with identification. So they write down who you are, where you've been, um, and where you're staying, and then you can go into the store and then come back out. So that way they, they can do contact tracing. Um, you have to disinfect your shoes before you go in anywhere. And so there's a little tray that you have, you have to disinfect your hands, they spray you down. It's just normal. So I'm just used to this whole procedure of going anywhere. And then you go to the United States, none of that is in place at all. So depending on the state, I have to, there's a disclaimer. So depending on the state. And so I was a little bit surprised that, you know, anytime you would go somewhere, you could just walk right in. There's no contact tracing that I saw. Um, a lot of you know, variation on if people are wearing masks or not. And so it's, it's a lot different. Of course, you could argue, you know, freedom of choice versus authoritarianism and all of that kind of stuff. I'm aware of that, but it is, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, change going from Argentina, which is really, really strict to Colombia, which is strict based on region. So some places really strict, some places not. And then the United States also very, very different based on city and state. I think I think our experience here has been that you know it's uh, we've had like really strict government like lockdowns um, at you know at one point and then we we used an app for concept for um, contact tracing which it worked well or not <laughs> oh, this is like this is this is a typical this is like a this is a typical UK thing where you know things may or may not work you never really know sure. but you know it's uh, so attempts were made anyway and uh, but then. We've always been, I think the drive has always been to open up again. That was always like the agenda. So there was, there'd be a lockdown and it'd be like, okay, we'll open up again. And then, of course, you know, it was realized very quickly that 
the opening up of society had happened too early and then the numbers went through the roof again. Then, you know, we went into lockdown number two and then, uh, you know, everybody was screaming that, you know, freedom of choice and all that kind of stuff. And then we opened up again. And then just before Christmas, the numbers went crazy. And sure. at that point, I think the penny dropped um, that we just, and to be honest, I mean, when we went into this lockdown number three, none of us really thought it was going to take this long. I mean, I literally thought it was going to be like three weeks, you know, I don't know. Yeah. This was four yeah. months ago. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure I said when I, it started, this is going to last yeah, a you, you, minimum of yeah, three, you, you, three you, months. You're the eternal, the eternal pessimist. Yeah. Me going like, ah, well, you know. <laughs> realist, man, realist. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Well, it is interesting when I talk to younger people, so I'm saying 35 or younger, around there, their perception is nothing like this has ever happened in the history of the world ever before. This is unique to their experience. And um, I'm like, yeah, this this kind of stuff has happened, and for every generation, you know, people have had to to face this type of of crisis. And so, for my parents, it was you know when they were kids, World War II. So there wasn't lockdown, but there was the war, you know, around the entire world in 1918. There was the pandemic. We had the plague. You have you know either famine or pestilence or war or something that happens almost every generation. Fortunately for my generation, uh, you know, we had the seventies and the eighties and the nineties and we got, we got away with almost uh, scot-free. So we didn't have to deal with much of anything. Um, and so I think that's maybe put some of us at a disadvantage of like, oh no, I'm entitled to my freedom. I'm entitled to, you know, anything I wanna do and having this pressure of, okay, we're a society, we have to take care of each other. Is a, is a new thing for some people. So, um, yeah, it's difficult. There is no, there is no easy answer to this kind of uh, a situation. Somebody is always going to have have uh, something to pay, time or money or something. Um, there's no solution that works for everybody, unfortunately. What has what has it done to your like to, to your mental health? Because I'm I'm guessing you know your you you're traveling you've you've probably got some you know at least of an outline of an idea as to what you want to do next and then uh, you know this pandemic starts and everything everything gets thrown out of the window uh, and you're locked in a room in Buenos Aires for months <laughs> like yeah like how did you like how did you get yourself out of that place well I, the in Buenos Aires it was a little bit um interesting so my my niece and her husband had just moved there. They live um, in a really interesting little uh, part of town uh, called San Telmo, which is close to uh, the center of everything. So uh, my niece's husband is a university professor, and so they were sort of in this really cool place. Um, so when I first got into Buenos Aires and was locked down, I, was, uh, I had to go to a, a hotel and I couldn't leave that room for 30 days. I couldn't see anybody. I couldn't talk to anybody. Uh, all the food had to be delivered with a special, like you call down, say what you want. They deliver on room service, knock on your door. You wait 10 seconds, open it up. There's a cart. You get the food, bring it in, put the cart out, close the door. So for a month, it was solitary confinement. So that, that was difficult, but that was early days. So that was uh, Zoom meetings and all the stuff people were doing early on. Um, I think Adorama, we were doing create no matter what. So there was stuff to, to, to work on. 
And then I was able to get an Airbnb apartment that was just about a kilometer from where my niece and her husband lived. But we couldn't see each other because it, was, it wasn't legal. And the, the lockdown there was serious business. So if you were caught walking on the streets, uh, you could, by a minimum, you would get a fine. But a lot of people were put in jail. And so it was you know, pretty darn strict. You can just zip outside. Um, and so for about a month or two, it was just me in a room by myself. Uh, and then I survived on Uber Eats, you know, so there were delivery and stuff, um, sort of, but th there was a, a crazy thing that happened. And so out, I, I had a balcony on the eighth floor and I was on one of the main, it's like, um, the, one of the main streets in Buenos Aires. So it's Avenida Corrientes. So it's the, uh, obelisk is there. It's just this main thoroughfare so i don't know what you guys would call it in london high street i don't know something but um i could see out my window where all the stores uh were but they're all shuttered so everything's closed nothing is open and i could see a starbucks just right down below on the other side of the road there was a starbucks and uh so after i think the first two months they opened essential businesses and that included places that sell food and so I walked out on my balcony one day and I looked down and Starbucks was open and I just almost freaked out, not because I'm a huge Starbucks fan, but it was like there was something open, like I could talk to somebody. And so um, and also when you travel a lot, you just want the taste of home and Starbucks, you know, a mocha or a coffee, whatever. It's nasty coffee, but it tastes like home. And so I remember I went in and there were three or four people there. And I talked to them a little bit and they obviously knew that I was from out of town because almost all the tourists had left the city. And so every single day I would go down to Starbucks, not for the coffee, but just to have a conversation with somebody. And so there were only like four or five people that were approved to work in the Starbucks. And so um, they were teaching me Spanish. So every day I'd go in, they'd teach me a new word and we'd hang out and, you know, you can't do this a time limit. So it was like this little treat of being able to go down and hang out. They became really good friends of mine. And so um, for probably six or seven months, yeah, I would go every single day to have a conversation with these four or five people that worked in the Starbucks. Um, and then eventually they, they lifted some of the restrictions and we were all able to go outside to this, you know, an outdoor eating area. And we had a, a dinner together one night, which is really great. All spaced out. <laughs> it was really yeah. fun. So it was like five or six people all spaced out over a big distance. Um, and so that was a fantastic thing. And I think that is true, no matter if you're in the pandemic or not. Uh, finding a community wherever you live is really important. And it doesn't matter if, if you're traveling or not traveling or in a pandemic or not in a pandemic. For anybody that wants to survive through life, the most important thing, one of the most important things is community. You know, having friends that will let you talk to them, listen to you, um, people that will tell you where you're wrong or when you're right or encourage you or tell you to sit down, whatever it is, but you've got to be based in a community and not a virtual community, a real life community. Um, and I think that's also the difficulty of the pandemic is that has been removed from us. And so, yeah, that's, that's how I survived was just friendships, making friends. And of course, my niece and her husband, finally, we were able to come and meet. And so I spent a ton of time uh, zipping back and forth to their apartment. So, yeah, just people saved me. I think pre-pandemic, people forgot that that's 
what life is actually all about, right? Um, I certainly did. You know, sure. you, you you just get so caught up with you know regular you know life and work, and I've got to get this done, got to get all of that kind of stuff. You you forget. I mean, I, certainly for me, and I, hopefully I can speak for many other people out there. Over the past year, I've come to realize more and more and more how important the people are that are around me, whether that's right. someone like Kay, um, whether that's someone I just happen to have this five second conversation with down down the street or in a Starbucks, for example. The, the, sure. They're the moments that actually matter to me. And I'm hoping that this past year, people will remember that that's what it's all about and come out of the back of this with a slightly different perspective on priorities, I guess, and what's actually important to you. That's my hope. Yeah. That's my me trying to be positive. Uh, I don't I do that very so. often, but on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the, weird, the weird thing about this is I thought about this the other day, and I kind of thought, you know, over the last year, we've, I mean, I personally, and I, I think it's probably the same for you, but, you know, we, we've, we've connected with more people, yeah. more creative people than we would have done ordinarily you know, had had the pandemic not happened, and had you know, have we just kind of continued to to be stuck in the rat race, you know, and uh, going right. around the hamster wheel, yeah. you know? I think um, you know. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I yeah, know that's that's that, you know the point is, <clears throat> it's actually for us in a way, it's actually led to to making more connections rather than less, which is what you would assume would happen, you know? Mm. Absolutely. You know, back way back in the day. In the Snap Factory days. Um, so Snap Factory was the name of my studio in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, I, I taught an eight-week workshop every Tuesday night and every Thursday night from 2003 to 2014 with no breaks. So I never missed. So for I think I took one week off in somewhere. But the joy of that was uh, you would have uh, 12 people for eight weeks. So they'd come in every Tuesday night and it became, you know, it's like going to camp. At first, everybody didn't know who anybody else was. Nobody knew anybody's name. And then over the weeks, by sharing their photos and growing together and doing these exercises and you know going on group photo shoots and all that kind of stuff, those people really became a cohesive little group of people. And invariably, what happened is those people became longtime friends. And that just happened over and over and over. And so the joke was in Phoenix, it's you came to Snap Factory and you left part of the Snap family. And it's true. So there are probably, I don't know, six or 700 people in Phoenix that have been through all of those workshops that still hang out to this day. You know, they'll, they'll go and, you know, of course, little clicks and stuff. And that was, to me, the driving force of, of teaching those workshops because, you know, anybody can learn about photography on YouTube or some way. But for me, it was the in-person community um, and just getting together. And so I still have my, one of my best friends, um, we met in the class, his wife bought the class for him in 2004, I think. And uh, yeah, he's my best friend to this day. Another guy, Keith. I mean, there's just tons and tons of people. Um, I have a crazy story about London and mental health. If we have time, I can tell you this story. Um, so way back in 2017, I think I was in Africa. And I, uh, the opposite of community is just being totally isolated. And so I was going through that because normally in parts of the world, you can 
you can connect with people through broken English or, you know, some Spanish or something. But in Africa, the places I went, nobody spoke any language that I had any remote connection with. So they'd speak Kosha or, or Afrikaans or something. And so it's like, oh, you know, stuff like that. Uh, like I, so there's no conversation happening at all. And, in, and even in the, the best of circumstances, when you're in a country, you don't speak the same language. The conversation is at best, like, is the food good? Yeah, the food is good. Would you like more? Yes, that's good. Where are you from? I'm from here. Good. Okay, thanks. Yum. You know, there's not much, and you're not discussing Kierkegaard or something, you know, existentialism or something deeper. You're just having a basic conversation. But even less than that was happening in Africa. And then on top of that, I was taking these malaria pills that the side effects uh, are depression, suicidal thoughts, hallucination, um, uh, mood swings, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, ah, none of that will happen to me. And that, almost all of that stuff happened to me. And so as I was riding through the countries, um, I finally got uh, up into Kenya and I'm like, I have to get out of here for my own mental health and going crazy with just being totally isolated. Um, I'm really not in a good headspace. And so I thought I'm going to go to London and hang out with Gavin Hoey. And so uh, I flew my bike to London and I'm like, Gavin, I'm in town. He's like, great. And um, I was going to go see him. I was in Greenwich and my motorcycle was stolen. So the bike, uh, very expensive bike that I love is like my one position gone. And then I learned London is like the number one place in the world for bike theft, which I didn't know that. So um, anyway, so I went down to Gavin's house. He's like, you, I've got a spare bedroom. You can just stay in my house. And so um, luckily my motorcycle was found, but it had been thrown off the back of a truck and destroyed. And so they said, it's going to take about five weeks to rebuild your motorcycle. So I was stuck in London. And fortunately, Gavin let me stay at his house for a good portion of that time, or else I would be broke because London is so expensive. But, um, and Gavin had no idea. Gavin and Sam, his wife is, is really awesome. Sam, you have to meet her. You have to have both of them on your podcast. But um, they had no idea that I was like in this, uh, like recovering from all these uh, malaria pills and that was working its way out of my system and all the mood swings and depression and stuff. But what they did was every night they're like, come on inside, we're going to have, uh, they'd make homemade pizza or whatever the food was. Sam would make something you know, really yummy. And then we would watch Taskmaster, which is now <laughs> one of my favorite shows ever. So we'd awesome. turn on Dave and we'd watch Taskmaster um, <laughs> Dave. for like a month. <laughs> and we just binged Taskmaster. Yeah. And that was sort of how I recovered from that that time in Africa was just hanging out with Gavin and Sam and uh, their daughter and watching Taskmaster and just being silly. And for those who watch Adorama TV, uh, uh, Gavin and I have done some pointless challenges where we have a task, we open it up, and we have to go and do that thing. Those are 100% based on watching Taskmaster. Right. So <laughs> that's, that's where those came from. Um, yeah, community. It's key. It's essential. I can absolutely see how that would uh, how that would have an effect. Because I, I remember, you know, when again you come back to the first uh, the first lockdown last last year, like March April, you know, over here in the UK, um, you know, you obviously is generally you know a worrying time because you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you don't know sure. what's going to happen to your job. Um, we had I mean, the reason why we started the um, the podcast in the first uh, in the first place as all of our 
tens of viewers out there uh, will know is is that we had we had things lined up and everything got canceled and literally from one day to the next it was all it was all gone and so we you know we just uh, decided we had to do something or start something to keep ourselves sane because we got to the point where you know you'd wake up in the morning and you'd be like I don't even know what day it is today you yeah, know right. three weeks later you wake up and you go I don't know what day it is and I don't care <laughs> you know because everything <laughs> every day is the same and so that's that's why we started the podcast to give us some structure. You know, so that we decide, like, all right, every every Monday we will record a show. Uh, every Thursday we release it, and so at least we know what to do in a Monday and what to do in a Thursday. You know, and so that literally right. structure. But the other thing that worries you, of course, if you have kids, is what happens to your kids because your kids are not seeing their friends and their social uh, umwelt basically has been blown to smithereens. They can't really communicate. With, they don't going to school. You know, and you're really generally, you know, worried worried about. Um, you know, what, what is going to happen to them, especially because you don't know, or nobody knew at the time, how long this was going to last. Was this just going to be a few weeks? Was it going to be a month? Was it going to be three months? Or was it going to be worse, like six months? Because no, nobody knew. And so sure. what, what we did, uh, we, we kind of, we did these kind of movie marathons, you know, the Marvel movie marathon, like 26 right. movies or whatever it was, you know. And it was really, it was fun because it, it turned into like a family uh, occasion, you know, and we'd watch them in, um, like in order from, I don't even know, Iron Man one or whatever the first one. No, it was, uh, Captain America. That's the, the first one I said, that's like the first okay. one. And then we just, you know, we watched the whole thing through and it was, it was funny how everybody got involved in the conversations and started to evolve around the characters and what was going to happen in the context of the story of the, the overall story arc across all these movies right. and stuff like that. And that kind of, that took a little bit of the sting out of the whole situation. It just, you know, it lightened things up a little bit. It was a distraction. Um, and it worked for 26 movies. <laughs> it was great. That's fantastic. My sister and her daughter are doing that same thing right now. They're doing all the Marvel movies. Right, great. Like, oof, that's a lot of Marvel I don't, movies. It's crazy <laughs> also because, of course, Marvel has since then uh, started producing lots of TV shows on top of that. So you get even more content to watch. Yeah. Oh. You're gonna to have to start that whole process again, yeah. All 26 films plus. Oh well, we've, I mean, we we are you know we're keeping up with it because because I'm lucky enough that I've married I've married a woman who's <laughs> a major major sci-fi fan. Okay. A nerd, if you will. A nerd, so, okay, will. let me ask you this. There's only one right answer to this, but you can guess. And what's the best sci-fi film ever made? Well, in my view, it would be Star Wars, what they now call a New Hope. But there you go. Okay, I can see that. That's um, I think historically uh, maybe. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a story behind that. It's actually well, it would actually be Return of the Jedi in a sense because that, that was the first uh, sci-fi movie I ever saw in the movie theater. Ah, and you see, the my thing first was, was Star Wars as a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I remember standing in line to go see Star Wars. You see, I was a I was a kid, and basically, it's the first time that back in those days, my parents didn't care. Like my mom gave me some money. <laughs> Seriously, my mom gave me some money. I had to, I had to get on a, get this. I had to get on a train, um, and it was like a twenty minute train ride or something to the to the next uh, bigger town. I grew up in the south of Germany in a wine region where it's basically out on the prairie, out in the vineyards, right? And so sure. I had to I had to take a train to get to the next town uh, where there was a cinema. And so my mom gave me some money. I hopped on a train, and I went 
to the cinema and I saw this, they had like, they had these, um, you know, these posters outside and I, I look at the poster and this, this has spaceships and weird aliens and lightsabers. And yes, like, right, gotta go. I'm going to go see that. And so I looked, I looked, <laughs> I looked tall for my age. And so they let me in this old lady, you know, did I get a ticket? <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much. Yeah. So anyway, so, you know, I went in and what I used to do back then was I used to sit right in the middle in the first front row in the cinema. Oh, and so I'd get like the, the full on, like yeah. around like 3D experience, right? And so, <laughs> and I didn't know what to expect because I'd never heard of Star Wars at that time. And, uh, and this and, was before George Lucas messed with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. This was yeah. Return of the Jedi. So, so the funny thing was, was I basically, you know, I watched the done. thing. I was like, I was steamrolled. I, I was like, the movie finished and I literally, I had no idea what just happened. Uh, it was just, it's, it completely, my senses were blown. And so <laughs> what would happen would be, everybody would leave the uh, the, the uh, auditorium through a single door. So it was different, you, you came in through a different entrance and the exit was right. just a single door. And there was like a thick black curtain that was about maybe half a foot away from the wall. And everybody went outside and I was the last person in the in the queue. And so everybody went through this door and I just slipped in between, in that space in between the curtain and the wall and they shut the door <laughs> and I was straight back to the front row because I knew that in about 20 minutes time, they would show the movie again. Right. And I did that three times. Wow. <laughs> like, wow. And so you're a bigger geek. Oh, man. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, what you know. Well, I'll, I'll blow your mind with a fact, a right. Mark Wallace fact. So uh, Return of the Jedi, you know, all the land speeder stuff, or not the land speeder, the, the stuff they're in the, the Redwood Forest. Yes. Yeah. Through. yeah, yeah. I lived there for five years. And did you? Oh, wow. Awesome. So, yeah, one of my uh, friends was in Return of the Jedi. He was one of the guys standing outside the door, you know, trying to get in, in the forest. So, yeah. And when I first moved there, it was in 1983. It's Crescent City, California. Um, you could still walk up into the forest and find you know, little remnants of Return of the Jedi out and about. You can sort of find like a little scrap of costume, whatever. Yeah. See, and this, you know, the this, is the thing, this is the thing that brings us together because we, where we are right now, um, we are literally, well, only a few miles. Uh, 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, from the movie studios where all... Pinewood. Yeah, Pinewood Studios, where, where all the, the contemporary Star Wars movies are filmed. It's literally just down the road. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, and you see... I didn't know that. And you see the productions. In fact, when they shot, what was it? Where they brought in all the sand? Do you remember? Oh, uh, was it the Force it was Awakens? Force Awakens was it? Yeah. So when they yeah. shot the Force Awakens, this is hilarious. They they uh, they shot the opening oh. scene was like on some desert planet or something, and right. where, you know this village gets attacked by stormtroopers, and uh, and so they shot that in the Pinewood car park, like in the parking lot. And they brought in wow. trucks and trucks and trucks of like beach sand and literally dumped it all in the parking lot and created this, this, this desert that sand. That is crazy. And I remember them curing. Wow. Is that not the same one yeah. where they built, actually built the um, Millennium Falcon? Yes, that's like, right. Life, life size or yeah. near life size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of Star Wars going on around here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lots. I, 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 I'd say Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Oh, okay. right. cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can get up yeah. with that for sure. Yeah. Did you like the, the the more recent version? Yeah, I did. I mean, 20, it was 22, whatever it was. I mean, it wasn't a classic like the original, but I no. thought it was 
a, a decent sequel. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great story for sure. Yeah. It's good. One of my favorite German films. Uh, I don't know what the German Lola Run, Run Lola Run. Have you seen oh, it? Oh, God, that's a killer movie, man. <laughs> yes. It's so, so good. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, uh, I... So I saw this movie okay. over here in the UK because I moved I moved over um, to the UK like in in the mid nineties, and um, and I saw that in a blockbusters, believe it or not, when they still existed, <laughs> yeah. you know, and uh, and I picked it up and I realized you know it was um, it was Run Lola Run, but the the German title was I think it was Lola Rent, right? Something Rent? like that, yeah, exactly. And so I saw yeah. a German title on the DVD box. I'm thinking, a German movie in a blockbusters here? Oh, it's so good. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Is, have you, have actually, you seen it? No, I'm not sure. Video based, uh, based on Blade Runner and Run Little Run, I made a video for Adorama based on those two movies. Like this photo shoot is based on these two movies. It's out there somewhere. I, I did it probably I don't know, eight or nine years ago. Right. Okay. Oh, well, wow. We're going to dig that we're out. Dig that out. What did you do in it? What, what connected them? I, I made a movie poster. I think that's ah, what it was. Right. So we shot some stuff with lights coming in the lens and smoked up the studio and then threw it all in. I don't know. Uh, but definitely it's a shout out to those specific movies. Oh, I feel like yeah. I feel a remake challenge coming on. <laughs> movie poster could be fun. I'll oh, find yeah. it and, and see if I can send it to you. <laughs> if I shoot you as Mark Hamill. Ooh. <laughs> you'd love that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a, there's a cool bakery nearby nearby mine. I could I could do <laughs> you can get some Chelsea buns inside of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of Danish ones. Yeah. Are not Danish, the lights yeah. you're looking for. Yeah, sure. <laughs> nice. Yeah, but that can be done. That can oh, be done. Dear. Yeah, the little okay. thing. Oh, I'll be sure. Jabba the Hutt. You can be my slave girl. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I feel like I feel like Jabba the Hutt right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I started working out again today for the first time in a month. Did you? Yeah. Oh, Starting to hurt now. already. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I did gain about 15 kilograms during the pandemic. So, oof, not good. <laughs> did you have to change out the suspension on your bike? I had to change my bike jacket. Oh, yeah. really? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't fit in this anymore. You laugh like Jimmy Carr. What's going on? That, <laughs> I can't believe you That's just said it. that. Awesome. Not two yeah. days ago, I put up a story on, well, no. So I said, one step back. Yeah. A friend of mine started saying, you laugh like Jim, Jimmy Carr, like a year ago. Yeah. The first time ever. No one's ever said that to me before. And then um, uh, we were doing a shoot recently as we started to be able to get back outside and whatnot. And yeah. out of nowhere, he said, Nick, you laugh like Jimmy Carr. <laughs> and not two days ago, I put up just a story because I took a photo <laughs> of him just after he'd said that, of him laughing. And just put a post up yeah. about that. And I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty distinct laugh. <laughs> I can't even do it. Like yeah. inhaling. <laughs> yeah, the inhale laugh. laugh. Brilliant. Yeah, that's crazy. So perfect. <laughs> so when you're, um, so you, you're, you're going back to the United States in, in a few weeks time, you said. Um, yeah. And you're going to spend, some, you're going to spend the next year there. Um, yeah. When you're, when you first decided to sell up and leave, like what was that? What what was the initial kind of um, what's the word? What was what was the, the impetus, initial the inspiration? The inspiration for it, yeah. Well, it's 
there was no like uh, all of a sudden, bam, I've decided I'm going to leave. So the 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 truth is I've been a traveler for much longer than I've been a photographer. I've always traveled. Uh, that's It's just that people don't know me for that part of my life. And so starting in maybe 1985, when I got my first car, I would drive up and down California. And then when I got out of high school, it was trips across the United States. Then I created a, a company, production company, where we traveled. I was in a band. It's a long history of Mark Wallace before YouTube. Um, but I was traveling in the, in the 90s about 40 to 44 weeks full-time every year for years. So about 13 years, I was just always on the road. So I've been to every nook and cranny and small town and um, every highway and byway in the United States um, to death. So um, a, another friend of mine traveled with me during that time. We traveled together and we, we were sort of proud that we could drive basically from California to Florida without a map and navigate through all the cities along the way. So, um, you know, traveling has always been in my blood. And so I stopped traveling in uh, around 2000. So I got a job at Intel. So I was a, a software developer at Intel. Then I became a manager there for, for about a decade. Um, and so uh, fortunately, that helped me start a studio and, and gave me funding to create the photography business. But, um, you know, that was a, a shocker to me because now I had to be in a desk, you know, nine to five, eight to five. Well, at Intel, it was seven to eight, whatever. <laughs> it was long, long days. Um, uh, and I think that the only saving grace is I became the manager of the integration engineering teams in India. And so I was flying back and forth to uh, India. And then, you know, I'd stop over in France along the way. And I managed a team up in Oregon. So I was sitting back and forth. So I had at least some travel during the last few days or few years that I worked there. Um, and so... Uh, when I left Intel in 2009, um, I resumed traveling. So I was traveling back and forth to New York and, and zipping around the United States, but also doing the photography stuff. I just didn't post all of that travel stuff. And so really what happened is in 2012, I wanted to do a tour of the United States. Um, I'd done a tour in 2009 with Pocket Wizard. We did the Mark Wallace US meetup tour. I zipped all over the United States and and showed people how to use the Mini and Flex Pocket Wizard system. It was just a fun, fun tour. And I wanted to sort of recreate that and do a, uh, a workshop tour through the United States. Um, and it was a disaster. So that tour, because we had a, a really large partner that was going to do all the marketing and booking studios and a lot of stuff. So they had a big investment. And right at the last minute, they pulled out. And so all the marketing vanished. And it was after I'd already reserved, uh, you know, these were places that we reserved expecting audiences between three and 600 people. We thought it was going to be what we did in 2009. And so what happened was uh, I did about half of that tour and it lost just tens of thousands of dollars. It lost so much money. Um, and so, you know, it was so much money that it cost one of my employees their job because we couldn't pay the salary so that was sort of devastating that that had happened because it was you know not just a worker it was we, we considered ourselves family um so i really wanted to travel but i you know we recovered from that financial loss as a company um i wanted to do the travel but i never wanted to put another person at risk financially you know all the people that worked with me 
have families and kids and house payments and all of that kind of stuff. And the, the truth is around 2013, 2014 was on paper, probably the peak of my online career. So I was partnered with Profoto and the Mac group and Adorama TV and X-Rite. And I mean, uh, many, many brands. And so I was just online, either live or making videos every single day. Sometimes we'd make two videos in a single day. We had six, six people yeah, working full-time, two editors full-time and producer and myself and a lighting tech and a camera operator and makeup artist and assistants. And, you know, it was an incredible amount of work, an incredible amount of cash flow coming through. And what I found was I had no time for myself. And so all of that stuff sort of combined where um, I thought, is this really what I want to do with my life, you know, for the next 10, 15 years? I wanted to travel. I didn't want to put other employees at financial risk. I didn't want to continue doing uh, two or three videos every single day, webinars constantly. I was just exhausted from all of that. And I felt like I have this online persona of Mark Wallace. And even my friends, when I'd show up, they're like, hey, Mark Wallace is here. Like people that have known me for, you know, 20 years. Because it's Mark Wallace is sort of this person that people see online. And I thought, gosh, I just I haven't carved out any space for myself. And so uh, I decided one day um, through talking with many friends and a few months of, of, of looking at things that it was now or never really. And so uh, that's, that's when I did that. So there's a much more in-depth version of that story, but I think it would take us more time than we have to discuss that. That's the, sort of the, in a nutshell, um, how that happened. So travel's been, well, permanently there for you, right? The, the, the want, the desire to see other places, experience, um, other, other, other regions and whatnot, right? That's, that's inbuilt in you. It's your it's, yeah. it's genetics, isn't it? I think, you know, when I was a little kid, I lived in a town called Hamilton, Montana. So Montana is in the very north of the United States. It's in the mountains. It's very rural. This is in the 1970s. And um, so the, uh, the, there were really no large stores in the tiny town I lived in. It was like maybe two and a half thousand, three thousand people in a very rural place. You know, we got milk from the cow down the road and we grew our own vegetables. My dad hunted and he brought the meat home. Our house was heated with wood. Um, so we're talking very rural kind of, a, a, of upbringing, but there was a big city it, called Missoula that was just north of us. It was, you know, in my mind, this grand adventure to go to Missoula. Now, when I go back, you know, to visit, it's a 25 minute drive. It's, it's not that far away. Um, but I can remember, uh, my dad taking me to Kmart. I don't know if you know what Kmart is. But Kmart is like Walmart or, uh, I don't know, some big store, but way back in the 70s. And I'd never experienced a store that was more than a tiny mom and pop shop. And so uh, I remember going to Kmart with my dad and I think my brother and my mom were there as well. But we drove, you know, through the mountains in my mind, this grand adventure is maybe half an hour. And then we got to Kmart and in Kmart, there were rows of toys and clothes and bicycles and skateboards and then the big deal was they had a cafeteria 
I'm going to have to send you an image of what a cafeteria looked like in 1970 at Kmart because it's amazing. <laughs> like everything's plastic and brown and orange and globes and oh, spaces. Nice. But I remember going to that and you'd have a little tray and you'd get whatever. And I just remember we were eating at a restaurant and that whole day I'm like, wow, this is amazing. It's just so amazing. It was just this really surreal experience. And I was telling a friend that story uh, in Paris a couple of years ago. And they're like, ah, oh, that must seem so crazy to you now that, you know, you just went to a Kmart um, compared to what you've experienced, you know, coming to a city like Paris or going to Kathmandu or something. And I'm like, no, the experiences are equal to me. That childhood experience of going to Kmart is just as fascinating to me as walking down the streets of Istanbul or going to Mongolia or something. It's an equal experience of wonder and awe. And I think the takeaway from that is really important that you not compare your own life experience with the life of somebody else, because whatever you're experiencing, you're experiencing. And if going to you know, Starbucks for the first time is a mind-blowing experience to you, nobody can take that away. It is a mind-blowing experience. And it's no less mind-blowing than going, walking to the jungle somewhere, flying across the world. If that's something that's new and adventurous to you, then it is. It's totally valid. And so the, the advice I'd give for people that you know want to have new experiences in life is you don't have to go across the world. You don't have to do some big grand journey. Just try something new, whatever that is. You know, go to a dance class or uh, hang out with a new group of photographers or uh, try a new style of movie or go to a new cafe across town or take a new sport up, something. And you might find that that is the equivalent of having a Kmart mind-blowing experience. So it's all valid. It's all good. It's, it's all the umwelt experience of if it's new, it's new. Oh, Jeff. Absolutely. This podcast has been filled Absolutely filled with wise words. <laughs> I hope people I take hope so. a lot of this away. Yeah, you know, what you're just saying there is it's like um um you don't you don't know you're good at something until you try it. And right. you have to be open enough to go and try anything. It doesn't really matter what it is. Sure. You may suddenly realize you are the most fantastic skater in the world. And you never knew it because you never tried it for whatever reason. Yeah, you know the other thing is right. is that you get to try things. Uh, in order to find the good in it. Yeah. I, the best yeah. example for that most recently is, and we'll talk about this again, is an app called Clubhouse, which I recently, only very recently joined. Interesting thing. So he's it's about, a dating wait, he's, app or? Uh, <laughs> I know. Had to get in there. Had to get in there. <laughs> That's the amount you're on it. <laughs> 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 but here's, here's the interesting, see, here's the interesting thing. Um, you know, uh, somebody invited me to this to this app. I hadn't really woken up to that part of social media until very recently. And initially I kind of thought, well, you know, this is just going to be another social media app, you know. I put it in the same bin as like TikTok or whatever else, you know, something else that sure. would essentially occupy part of my time. And, you know, I would probably think it would be fun for a couple of weeks and then, you know, it would go straight back into the bin of, you know, has been social media apps. One of the things I found really uh, fascinating about it is that you're Unlike with just about any other social media app where you leave posts or you post pictures or videos or whatever, or you know, written word, um, this is a thing where you're in a room and you're actually, you're talking to other humans in real time. Like you're Whoa. having actual conversations. 
And the thing, you know, at first I thought like, an app based on audio, that is never going to work. Um, little did I know that it had, you know, in the meantime, it had become massively, uh, massively successful. But the, the thing that really draws me to it is, it's just simply the fact that you, you talk to other humans, other people who have similar interests uh, in real time. And in the like three weeks or something that I've been trying it out, I've had so many really awesome conversations with um, really interesting people from all over the world. And one thing that that connects all of these people that I've that have been speaking to or that I've had um, the opportunity to have conversations with is just the interest or love for photography, you know, um, or creativity and something like that. And it's it's been um, it's been really quite interesting. I'm surprised, you know, um, but it's this kind of this thing where, you know, I went to it thinking, ah, uh, well, you know, I'm going to give it a shot and then. I'm probably never going to never going to open that app ever again, and it's just you know, up and proven it's wrong. Fantastic! It's been it's been, it's been I, yeah. You know, going back to what you said earlier about you, you'd never know if you're good at something unless you try it. Uh, something that my sister and I were just talking about recently mm. is that it's fantastic to do things you're not good at just for the sake of doing them. Mm. And I think that's another cultural thing. It's like, you know, if you want to play guitar and you learn that you're not very good at it, well, then you shouldn't be playing guitar. But if you enjoy playing the guitar, it doesn't matter if you're Whatever, good at exactly, it. Whatever, exactly, yeah. Do it. Yeah. I think it's true also of photography. If you enjoy it and you don't have aspirations of becoming a professional photographer or published photographer or do fine art, you just like taking photos, fantastic. Mm. Good. Do it. Yeah. You don't have to be good. Just enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Like, Couldn't agree more. This is, you know, I not agree more. I spent the best part of 25 years teaching the guitar. And the beautiful thing about that is, is that music in general, I mean, it's not, it doesn't even necessarily have to guitar, have to be the guitar, it could be any instrument, right? And therefore, really any creative endeavor, no matter whether it's painting or music or, or photography or whatever, it is that you can get at it from so many different angles and it means something different to to every single person. And, you know, some people have the ambition and the drives that they want to turn into their career and, you know, uh, and they work really hard and they spend every breathing minute of the day working on their, you know, technique or whatever. And that's cool. But then other people just simply enjoy strumming a bunch of chords and sure. their goal may be to play, to learn three Beatles tunes, you know, and that's cool. If they love you learn one, you'll know them all. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the reality is like, you know, I spent, I went up and playing the guitar since I was seven, but the reality is, you know, most of the time when I pick up the guitar at home nowadays, I write goofy songs for my nine-year-old daughter. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, All right, I got a question. If you had a choice, any Martin that you wanted, any Taylor that you wanted, or any Fender that you wanted, which would you choose? Um, so, except for the modern, I have Taylors and Fenders. Um, uh, Did you hear that? Plural. Florida, yeah, 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 Florida, yeah, yeah. Much, much to my wife. You have too many. I have too many, <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, but I think here's the thing. Um, so I have, I'm in love with two guitars, and you've mentioned two of those actually. Um, I, um, I own a, a 1984 uh, Fender Stratocaster American Standard, um, which okay, my dad bought. Fantastic. Yeah, it's Is it's it green? awesome. Say that again. Is it green? No, it's black. Black. Okay. <laughs> it's black. Yeah, it's um, it's a rosewood, Black. rosewood fretboard. Um, Ooh. but my dad bought it back in he actually bought it in nineteen eighty five, I think. 
And, wow. uh, and so I grew up with that guitar. I eventually inherited it. And despite all the other guitars that I bought over the years, this is the one guitar that I play virtually every day. You know, there's the, nothing compressed to the sound of it. There's also a lot of kind of memory in it and everything else. It just feels like it was, it feels like my hand has grown around it. You know, sure. which, is the, which is the weird thing. So it just feels like the most comfortable guitar. Um, so I love playing that thing. And the other, uh, the other one is is actually a Taylor three fourteen Grand Auditorium shape, which I bought. That was the first, relatively speaking, first really expensive um, steel string acoustic guitar that I bought, and I used that um, to write so much music on. And uh, I used it to perform because I did. Um, I I started out as as a as a session musician playing in bands, and then I started, you know I was an electric guitarist for the most part, and then by sheer accident, really ended up um, ended up uh, I was like carving out a little live performance career as a solo acoustic guitarist, which okay. seemed ridiculous at the time because I don't sing. <laughs> For love or money, or for the benefit of mankind, I really don't sing, and so, and so it seemed bizarre to me that people would want to listen to instrumental steel string acoustic guitar music that didn't that never made any sense to me. But for some reason, it turned out there were people who would mm. even pay for that. So, uh, and it was just like everything I did, I, uh, I, um, I did on that guitar, and I even named my daughter after it. <laughs> That's awesome. So <laughs> yeah. your dad bought you. A Fender Strat. No, it was his guitar. It was actually his guitar. He came home with that. Ah. Um, it was when I went to college. Um, so I went to, I moved to the UK to go to music college. And um, there was a point, you know, as a music student, I wanted to be independent. Uh, and uh, and I was very poor. And there was a point where I had, um, I had some really good gigs coming up. Uh, oh, recordings, I think it was. And my guitar given up, and I had no money to buy a new guitar. I had no money to get it fixed. No. I had it was it was a disaster, and so um, my dad put that guitar on the truck and sent it over to London. And I was wow. that's <laughs> that fantastic. Was, you know, so. my my dad bought me a Fender Dreadnought acoustic steel string. <laughs> nice when I was in high school. Yeah, which is not a very good guitar. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's, uh, and now I, I've had it for so long, but now it needs a luthier. The neck is all warped and it's like, you know, it's buzzy. You can barely play it, but it's the memories, you know, it's just sort of the, the nostalgia of the, of the, of the guitar. It's really fun. I have another question for you guys. I know it's your podcast. You're supposed to answer the questions, but you go. <laughs> Good for it, is, is that a Bell and Howell eight millimeter behind you? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yes, it is. Okay. So, uh, when I was nine, ten, when I first started making uh, videos, well, movies, I did it on a Bell and Howell eight millimeter, just like that. Oh, wow. And I did. So me and my friend, his name was Kenny Classy. What a crazy name is that? Uh, man, probably in nineteen eighty two around there, we had a bunch of Star Wars figures, and we'd take that old Bell and Howell, and you know, if you push up on the shutter, it only does one click at a time and we did full stop animation star wars oh, spectacular in yeah. eight millimeter 
with that camera. And so anytime I see one, I'm like, ah, oh, good old days. Uh, oh, tell making, me you've got access you know, to that, that footage. No, all that film is gone. I have no idea oh, no. what happened to that stuff. What I think shame. it was, is my friend's camera. Maybe he has it somewhere, but I haven't spoken to him in 40 years. You know, what's really but, funny uh, about this is, um, so when, when I was a kid, the first thing I ever really bought with, with any money that I had saved up was a video camera. It was an eight millimeter, like video eight, it was called at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like tape, video tapes. And, um, and so that, that was really my way into photography was actually through video. And, uh, and so I used to make little movies because uh, I was obsessed with movies and I was also obsessed with Star Wars. And uh, so in a very similar vein, I had, I had lots of uh, Star Wars toys, you know, spaceships, like the snow speeder and stuff like that. And I would right. take these models and I would mod them. So I would like glue stuff on them, like Allen keys and adding pen lids and, you know, <laughs> reshape them and then respray them and turn them into a slightly different look. Well, they still look like snow speeders, but it is just different, you know? Sure. So, and I used to hang them up on like fishing wires. Um, I used to like have a globe and, and put some light into that. And then I think, because that seemed like a beha behind the scenes thing um, on how they made Star Wars. And so I figured I can, I can make this spaceships look like they're zooming through space by moving the camera and stuff like that. So I was, you know, I was recreating these, these kind of special effects. It's hilarious. Some practical it's hilarious, effects. Man. You guys need to do that for your next shootout. Oh yeah. Yeah. Star Wars themed stuff. You know, a, a year ago, two years ago, whenever it was, we, we talked about, you've got an old film camera as well. Yeah. We yeah, talked about was... trying to, you know, working out how to use these old, old cameras. Right. right? And just, I could pick yeah, that the up. cameras I, I, are good. It's finding a place to develop the film or getting the the chemicals and stuff. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah so the the uh, the thought behind that was um, so Nick's got this this old film camera, and uh, and I was given an old Akfa. What was it? It's it's like one of those, you know, what do you call them? One of those be bevel cameras. It's a viewfinder. Oh, bellow. Yeah, one of those bellow cameras. You know. Um, it was yeah, made okay, in 1980, yeah. uh, sorry, it was made in 1937 or 38, and, and it was given to my grandmother when she graduated from her um, uh, photographer. Like, she she trained to be a photographer and a lab assistant or a lab person uh, back in the 30s. And so that was her graduation present, this particular camera. And that had been sort of in my family, la, la, la. And then a few years ago, my mom gave it to me as a heirloom birthday present, I think it was. Um, and I looked at it and, th and I, I immediately thought, man, I have no idea how to use this thing. <laughs> Not the foggiest idea. And then Nick uh, got hold of, of this camera we're talking about. And we thought like, hey, how cool would it be if we made a little short film on us figuring out how to work these things, yeah. do a photo shoot, and just see if we can actually come up with anything that resembles a photograph <laughs> of these, you know? We, well, I we like don't know if that Howell works. Has a dial. I don't know if yours does, but uh, the old ones they had a dial, and it just said for the aperture it was like sunny, cloudy, dim. I mean, it just it didn't have like an aperture value. It just had if it was shiny outside or overcast, you would just dial it to the weather. Not this to the has values, value. I think. Yeah, yeah. But you've got another one that had the shiny, sunny thing. Is it the Kodak? Oh, yeah, that does ring a bell. Like the yeah. old ones had like a little a little color on there. And so you would match the color of the sky to the little right. dot on the front. Yes. Yeah. I've got a little uh, Kodak Brownie as well okay. here. Okay. And that, that's like that. Yeah. Yeah. Bright sun, average, 
on sand, yeah. hazy sun, cloudy bright, like open how, shade. How subjective is that? Like, is that a hazy sun or is that a <laughs> sun? Like, well, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, man. That was, yeah, that was that was our mission. That was one of the things. That was one of the things we had planned. Actually, for March, do you remember that was scheduled in for March? It was, was yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah we're going to get a couple other people involved and whatnot. Yeah, we we found a few people Shame. who had um, um, who had lived <laughs> lived through the heydays of film photography, um, and uh, and had experience in in uh, developing film and stuff like that. And so the idea was that we would basically learn not only how to use the cameras themselves but also learn the whole process and how to develop film and yeah. how to right. print and all that um and uh and really the idea was it was basically you know we wanted to for ourselves we wanted to answer the question whether you know two photographers who really have kind of grown up in the, in the age of digital photography um for the most part um would we be able to actually create something on with film you know, you can. I mean, the fun, I think the challenge for you guys, here's my suggestion. If you do it, find some black and white rolls or roll your own and then um, try to find some some developing solution. You just need a timer and over, you know, a, an enlarger. You can find an enlarger at some, you know, secondhand store for cheap these days. But the process is is not difficult. You know, you just stick it in the solution for so long, you time it, you bring it out, you do some stuff. Um, see if you can do that. And then for extra added bonus, try the dodging and burning. That's what <laughs> it gets into the advanced stuff. Um, yeah, so in the 80s, I, I, I did all of the darkroom stuff, you know, mm. before digital. But um, it makes me laugh now that people say, yeah, back in the old days, they got it right in camera and they didn't do all this Photoshop stuff. And I'm like, Clearly, you've never been in a dark room because <laughs> yeah. I did a ton of that. You know, Ansel Adams used to make plates for <laughs> exactly. his negatives to yeah. block sky and shadows and all kinds of stuff. And so there was massive amounts of what we would now call post-production to mm. create those images that we see that are classic. Um, and somewhere, if you Google it, there's a, an old James Dean markup of the retoucher who did that in the dark room. I don't know. It's on F stoppers or something, but I remember seeing um, it, you yeah. can see like the, the original print and then all the markings on it that needed to be adjusted in uh, post-production. And then there's a, a fantastic documentary film that I think changed my life as far as my photography is concerned, but it's uh, James Noctway and the name of the movie is War Photographer. So James Noctway is a, is a photojournalist who has this credo Basically, he says, I'm not going to go into these areas that are, um, you know, war zones and social injustice. He did all this stuff, unless there's a way to connect that with a way that people can help. But anyway, in this documentary, it shows him in the darkroom processing processing these war uh, portraits, you know, of social injustice and famine and all this stuff. And it's massive amounts of post-production. And so I used to show that clip in my my classes saying, you know, the the uh, the old myth is that back in the film day, you shot it and whatever you got out of the camera, that's what you used. That's absolutely not true at all. Um, it's the same amount. We have more flexibility now. It's a lot easier now. But yeah, they still did all that stuff. It's, it's an interesting thing. I think, um, you know, I, I sometimes occasionally I do talks uh, in front of camera clubs um, about concert photography because that's that's how I got into into photography. Um, in the end, was th through being on stage and then 
started to photograph the things that were going on on stage and um and then fo- really falling in love with photography um but so one one of the issues you have very often is is that especially when it comes to concert photography you know I talk to an audience who, where, where a large part of the audience actually believes that you have to get it right in camera, because right. for whatever reason, there may be a little, bit, I don't know, you know, traditionalists. But um, the way I always try and explain it is that in concert photography, you're in a situation where really, you know, you, you you're flexing what's what you're flexing uh, what technology gives you. You're really maxing out. Uh, what your sensor can produce and you know and what you can do in post-production and so it's a little bit like you know the relationship between your camera and your computer is very much like the relationship between an electric guitar and the guitar amplifier you know if you take an electric guitar and you play it on its own unamplified it's not really going to give you very much you can play music but it's not going to be very loud if you look at the amplifier on its own it's dead but you put the two together you get some incredible music and you know, the, my my feedback to those guys that say you have to get it right in camera is you don't even get it right in camera. If you're shooting JPEG, you have to set up your settings. You have to say what the saturation is. You have to say what the contrast is. You have to say, you know, all of those things. And so you're essentially doing post production in the camera. And if you're not, then the camera is making all those choices for you. So no matter what, there's there is processing that's happening to an image neither you get to decide what that processing is or the camera's going to decide for you and i'd rather make the choice because i'm the artist i'm in control the camera's stupid um so yeah it's and even with the guitar analogy if you play a a guitar and you play down next to the bridge it's going to sound all tinny if you play up toward the frets it's going to sound totally different than you sound you know if you mute or whatever there's a, a million different ways to play that same guitar uh yeah, just that's what the art is. That's what the creativity is. is make it your own. Yeah, exactly. That's why everybody sounds different. You get different picks, different pickup choices, you know, different yeah. pickup positions, different playing positions. Yeah, different. There's a really cool thing, actually. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but um, uh, John Om uh, got Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top in to record on one of his tracks, right? And he said, uh, so Billy Gibbons walks in and John Gong goes, uh, John Om goes, well, you know, this. I have a room packed with guitars, pick any guitar you want and any amp you want, you know, whatever you want to use for the recording is yours. And so Billy Gibbons goes on, it goes into the room and he tries out lots of guitars and Jadon went, I couldn't believe what I saw. No matter what guitar he picked up, he always sounded like Billy Gibbons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Couldn't be more true. That's yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah. That's the way. Unreal. Yeah. I think photographers are the only, the only artists that take more pay more attention to our tools than we do to our art you know it's like on instagram i'm always shocked at how many people take pictures of their cameras like i don't care what camera you're using who cares i just want to see what comes out of it you know if it's an iphone or a sony or not who cares like what are you doing with that we think exactly the same and hopefully you've noticed we probably actually haven't talked about photography much <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah fantastic sure. <laughs> and uh, who was it? You, you said this a couple of times when we we, we spoke to Moose Peterson a few oh, that's right. uh, a few months ago now, wasn't yeah. it? And he said, "You know what? I love that because we didn't mention the word f stop once <laughs> in the whole podcast." That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's right. There's more interesting yeah. things to talk about. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. And photography is rarely about f stops. You know? Oh no, your screen died. 
Now I could see you fretting that the battery was dying for the last five minutes. I was it was. I was go. watching it go. I thought, is yeah, it going to hold out? Going, uh, <laughs> is that on the ninja? Oh, I can see it on yeah. your face. Uh, yeah. But that's my experience shooting my own videos constantly is you're thinking about the stuff. You're not thinking about your content because yeah. it's yeah. like, I wish I had a cameraman. I wish I had a production crew. Yeah. 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 You get a control one day. I mean, you literally have to control everything. You got to make sure all your batteries are charged all the time, like all of these little things. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy because like a normal Adorama TV video, I'm monitoring the main camera, the B-roll camera. Um, usually there's another camera overhead or something. So I have to make sure all of those are going in in sync. Then I have to remember to, you know, what I'm supposed to be going through, whatever the principle of photography is to try to get those lines right. And then at the same time, uh, pay attention to what the model is doing and give that person direction mm. and then make an actual photo that fits what I'm saying mm. and then do it all seamlessly. And so uh, one of the things that happens when when uh, I go to a studio, people are like, hey, can we just hang out and watch? I'm like, no, you can't. Mm. And they're like, why? Why? I'm like, because I'm already so distracted by all the cameras and making sure the lights are off and everything that just for me to try to remember that today we're going to be talking about uh, depth of field or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and it's so distracting thinking like, no, like what you were doing, thinking, I know the battery's going to die on that. Mm. We've got about five minutes. How can I wrap this up to make sure that I don't, that's what you're thinking. Mm. And what you're saying is, and so depth of field is, you know, very, very simple. You've got these three things that control that. And in your brain, you're like, okay, so this guy, I've got two more minutes to go. And that, mm. oh crap, is, do I have my B-roll camera? Is that the right angle? Oh no, I forgot to tell the model. She has to stand over here. So she's blocked. So I've got to move over here. And then, only, okay, I've got another minute and 30 seconds mm. and you're still. And so this, you know, and the internal monologue is radically different yeah. than what's coming out. And then invariably, you know, I'll say something and, and I'm like, okay, I'll just let it go. And then there's a comment ah, you said depth of focus instead of depth of field. You should get it right. I'm like, oh, yeah. You know? Oh, God. People need yeah. more to worry about than... Uh... Right. Oh, that's, that's definitely happened to us. You know? It's been, you know, just just doing this this podcast has been, uh, it really has been a learning experience. Yeah. You know, from... Yeah. It's, it's really funny when you go back to, like, episode one, you know, oh, and, yeah. and you sort of see how how we did things. But, you know, for us, I mean... Again, we've we've spoken about this many times on this on this podcast. We literally, I mean, we, I remember we got on the phone on a Friday, you know, and we decided uh, we were going to do we were going to start a podcast, and uh, and then you come up with a million different questions, like how do you how do you do a podcast? Like where do podcasts even live? Like where do how does that even work? Right. You know, sure. And then uh, and within within ten minutes, we basically uncovered about a hundred different questions or something, and then at some point we just went, you know what? It's Friday today. We're going to record our first episode on Monday, at four o'clock. That is it, you know. And so we're just going to get started right. with it. And uh, and so we'd learned. Figure the rest out. We just know? figured it out. Yeah, we've just figured it out. Yeah, as we, as we that's how you figure it out. You fail. Failing is learning. Exactly. And so if you if you're not if you haven't failed recently, then you're not growing. Yeah. So you should always be getting right to that place where you're about to you know fail at whatever you're doing, and then you know you're okay. You're you're learning and continue to learn. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's also how you know, like, ah, I didn't know the Sony's battery didn't work when it was like, that's how you learn because it goes out on you yeah. or the capacity of that, you know, 
card or whatever it is. Yeah. You you figure it out when it doesn't work. <laughs> now we know, know that the ninja can run for about a, an hour and forty minutes. Well, no, <laughs> no, 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 that's not what we know. Really? What we know is is that the batteries that I'm using on those at the minute are knackered. Right. Okay. That's what we know, right. and they're not charging properly either. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. A, that's an Atomus. Yeah. Well, Atomus has an AC adapter. It can run. It forever. does. It does. But I'm out of plug sockets where I am. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So okay. We have learned that. So here's funny. So the decision was the thing that's the most important is the recording. But you thought I'd rather have a light in the background on <laughs> that's plugged in than the thing that's the that most important. That is exactly important. it. <laughs> Priorities, okay. man. Yeah, I have the Atomos. It's not the um, Ninja. It's the. It has everything yours does. It just doesn't record. Right. Oh yeah. And so I had a. A Sony uh, A7 III, which is fantastic for video, except you can't see yourself. So you yeah. have to have an external monitor. And so once you add, it's like, uh, yeah, it's yeah. Sony is so close to making great cameras. But they all, <laughs> they all have a, some massive fatal flaw. Yeah. yeah. The question is, why do I keep buying them? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know I mean, that, I they think can that's see just... in the dark. That's why they can yeah. see in the dark. Yeah, I mean that's that's a, that's true for just about any any camera manufacturer at the moment. You yeah. know, there's, there's always something you go, why aren't they doing this? Like Nikon and the flip screens. Like, what is what's the why? Yeah, I mean it can't be that it can't be that difficult. Everybody else is doing it. Yours frustrates the hell out of me. This they thought, yeah. okay, I'll put a, a, a tilt screen yeah. on it. Okay, I'll, we'll do it halfway. <laughs> totally pointless. We'll do it halfway. Yeah. And then Take take the extra step. Just do what the the only thing that's very cool about it is every time I shoot video, like when I shoot you, for example, on that DZM50, and it's this 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 swivel screen or whatever, I always feel like I'm looking into like an old school like medium format camera. (laughs) Oh, down straight. Yeah, yeah. 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 Makes me makes me good. Yeah, the 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 Sony's. It's always a uh, like you can have 4K, but if you turn on 4K and uh, you have an external monitor to see yourself then face recognition is turned off. Like, okay, so you can't you can't do the face focus with an external monitor plugged into HDMI. So you can frame it up, then unplug the monitor, and then you know you're in focus. So you can either see yourself in the frame or you can make sure you're in focus. Or like I was editing with an old laptop and the A7 III can create proxy files at the same time as it records 4K. I'm like, fantastic. But it, if it does that, then you can't plug in the HDMI output to see yourself. Or you can have the proxy file, but you can't have the uh, the uh, face focus. And so it's like, okay, you can have one of these three awesome features, but you can't have all three at the same time. Like, okay, add another processor and increase the price by two hundred dollars. Yeah, like make the camera functional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only reason I bought the Ninja is because I've, I've just recently transitioned to Canon. Um, and so I've got a C70 as my video camera because I primarily do do video. Wow. And I've got an R uh, R6 as okay. as a stills camera primarily, but as my secondary um, video camera. But downsides with the R6 and video, even though the video is fantastic on it, it's excellent. It's still got the like 29 minute record limit, and you have to start again. Really? But then it's got you, the old same as the R5, the overheat issue um in in 4k and whatnot and so i got that to be able to do long form 4k filming simple simple as that and that's the only reason i ended up but 
I, I love it. It's what a fantastic piece of kit that ninja is. Yeah. You know, I love it takes a minute. And I love the like the the color so you can see where your exposure is. Yeah. So you know the exposure levels with the colors. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I love it. I just like I don't want to have to carry a camera and an external thing, then an external microphone, Absolutely. then an external LED panel. And then it's like this tree of blah. Yeah. It's craziness. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And then a gimbal. Yeah. All of that on a gimbal. No, <laughs> they just this. You just <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that. Yeah. This, I mean, if you haven't gotten one of these, it's uh, $350 US dollars, 500 if you get the like the the creator pack. It's by far the best camera I've seen in the last 15 years. It, it's so stunning. I, I mean, I've seen the visuals yeah. it produces. If that's what you've been using yeah. for it, that's fantastic. Yeah, so I, I got the first Osmo Pocket in like two years ago when it first came out. Basically, because it was so cheap, I knew I could make a couple of videos and, you know, earn some money from it. And then I thought, okay, then I'll just sell it or something. And I literally used it every single day for two years. And then, like, I've, I've made probably 10 or 15 Adorama TV videos with the Osmo Pocket. You can't tell. Um, and then uh, the new one came out and all the little gripes I had with the first one fixed. So wider angle of view. It's got a remote, uh, the Wi-Fi. Now it just plugs in this little uh, thing on the bottom so you can control it with your camera. It's got a built-in uh, wireless mic receiver so you can just plug in a lot of its remote controls. Oh, cool. the oh, thing. That's cool. um, you can plug it into external power and it doesn't die. It just keeps killing. Um, and so you can record yourself. So I, I'll take the Osmo Pocket for a lot of the B-roll stuff when I'm in the studio and I have to have like overhead shots. I just stick it on a light stand and shoot the light stand as high as I can go. And then with my phone, I I control oh, nice. the camera and then you can start and stop it and all that stuff. And it's 4K. And so if you edit in 1080p, you can zoom in and out in different sections and you have that or you can have it follow. I mean, it's like it's an insanely no brain kind of a camera to get if you make videos. So we have come to the end of Camera Shake Podcast, episode 53 with today's guest, Mark Wallace. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. It was an absolute education. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I hope we can do it again sometime in the future because this was a blast. Oh, absolutely. Just let us know the next time you have internet connection and we'll <laughs> get you we'll do it. Okay. <laughs> awesome. So if you enjoyed this uh, this episode, please make sure you head over to cameratechpodcast.com um, uh, and to join our community there. If you are listening to the audio version of this, um, you could just hop over to YouTube and check out our lovely faces in full Technicolor, if you so wish. Of course, remember, hit the subscribe button, um, hit that bell, whatever YouTube is trying to tell you, just do that. Um, also, I have noticed one thing. Um, if you are listening to, to the audio version on Apple Podcasts, you can scroll down and leave us a little star rating and leave us a little review. That would be lovely because that would mean that our, um, our show would be found in the great sea of podcasts. I've noticed there's been quite a few quite a few ratings coming in recently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it does make it's, a difference. It really good. does make a difference. Um otherwise it's nigh on impossible to find anything. And anything in in podcast world. Anyway, that would help us out. Now, that being said, without further ado, we shall see you next Thursday. Bye.